Hello, I am Gabriel Bronner, and this is the Big Compute Podcast. Today's topic is HPC and AI. We have traditionally used compute power for simulation in HPC. Increasing compute power over the years has enabled users to perform more simulations, more complex simulations, and achieve higher resolution results. Compute power has also enabled AI to advance. We now wonder, is it time to rethink HPC with AI? Where do we see the fields coming together? What benefits do we expect AI will bring to HPC? To discuss HPC and AI, our guest today is Dave Turek. Dave is Vice President for HPC and Cognitive Systems at IBM. Welcome, Dave, to the Big Compute Podcast. Thanks, Gabriel. Nice to talk to you. Great. It's good to have you here. And let's start, Dave, by first setting the stage. Uh, why do you think we're seeing growth of AI now, and where is it taking us? Well, I think when we look at stimulus to growth in, in markets, uh, typically it's accompanied by either innovation that makes something accessible that previously wasn't, or it's um, you know, a pricing dynamic where classic tools are now cheaper and, and more accessible. And, and by virtue of that, it stimulates dispersion of the tools uh, throughout the market and more people use them. In the case of AI, I think it's, um, it's really innovation that's driving um, uh, the, the uptake in, in the technology, courtesy of the popularization of the frameworks for sure, uh, and that in concert with different kinds of computing architectures that make, uh, make it pretty accessible and pretty efficient computationally. So from your point of view, it isn't simply that the algorithms were always there, but now we have the compute power that we can use them. There's also some innovation that happened in AI to take us where we are today. Yeah, that, that's right. And I, and I think the presence of modern computing, which as you well know, has, has increased dramatically over the last handful of years, especially with the introduction of accelerators has been a material feature of a landscape to really, um, really drive the acceptance and the utilization of AI. Yeah, yeah, we've seen like GPUs uh, doing pretty well with AI. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, GPUs now, and and I think what you're beginning to witness is the commencement, actually been ongoing for some time now, of sort of an arms race of exploration of other kinds of technologies. Uh, not that GPUs will be displaced. But if you, if you divide AI crudely in terms of deep learning and machine learning as categories, subcategories of AI, um, this whole notion of inferencing has apparently stimulated a lot of venture capital money and a lot of investment and a lot of thinking about alternative architectural forms to GPUs for at least that part of the problem. And, and I think you'll start to see silicon manifest itself in the market this year for sure, and much more beginning next year as well. So um, it's not gone unrecognized by clever people around the world, and uh, there's a plethora of things that are going to be forthcoming. So are you seeing growth mostly on a subset of AI that is machine learning or deep learning more specifically right now? Well, I think so. But I, you know, if we were to put this on a time scale, at, with t equals zero being the origin, we're at t 
equals 0.001. I think we're at a very, very embryonic stage. And I think that there are categories of people who are trained or who have trained themselves in terms of using the frameworks who are um, doing a lot of experimental work now and a lot of assessment about domains where the technology can be deployed. That's different than operational implementation, which of course would lag this by a little bit of time. And I think a lot of what people are recognizing at growth today is still kick the tires, experimentation, assess where the technology is best applied, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just the cusp of what will be a real burgeoning deployment of technologies in an operational sense um, very shortly. Yeah. So this, will this be like with any other technology adoption? First, there's a lot of excitement, then a bit of disappointment, and then big growth. Where do we think we are with AI in, in that curve? So I think, I think there's a lot of excitement. And I think that there's going to be, rather than characterize it as disappointment, I would say there'd be a fair amount of recalibration. And recalibration meaning um, a discovery of the domains where it's best used uh, in concert with humans and domains where it's not. I mean, I think today a lot of the lay community looks at AI in the context of um, uh, automated driving as, as maybe the principal example accessible to a lot of people. Um, and that, of course, brings in a whole ser series of ethical issues, as I think is well known. There are other domains of apl applicability, for example, in manufacturing domains. You know, can you um, tell a failed part from a good part, which is sort of devoid of a lot of that ethical consideration that embodies commercial use of technologies like automated driving, which I think is less of a barrier for acceptance and will probably see a lot of deployment, a lot of growth at a much more accelerated pace than these more complicated kinds of areas. And of course, there are variations around all these different kinds of domains. I don't mean to suggest it's a dichotomy, but, um, but I think that there are these obstacles that range from the more um, categorical, categorical in the sense of actually putting things into categories that don't have any sort of ethical apparatus surrounding that choice versus things at the other end typically involve, when you're involved with human interaction, uh, that, that brings a lot of ethical consideration into play. And that's going to be a, a little tougher road to, to hoe. Yeah, no, I understand that. I, I, I lived in Mountain View for eight years and I saw self-driving cars in front of me getting confused by a plastic bag floating in the air, right? So I, right. I, I've seen it firsthand that why should we be worried? Well, I don't know, until we feel really comfortable. It, it's hard to live that way. But I understand there's other domains where we're going to see more growth because it's not a an ethical choice, as you mentioned. Listen, Dave, right. you spent a life in HPC and now several years looking at AI, and um, I'm very interested in chatting with you about how these two things are coming together. And I actually read an article you had um, you know, a couple months ago uh, where we talk about how AI can impact HPC workloads. And you talk about two areas, uh, intelligence simulation and cognitive discovery. Uh, I wonder if we can talk about the first one first and, and tell us uh, what is intelligence simulation and how does it impact HPC? Right. So as, as its name kind of implies, intelligence simulation 
is the incorporation of AI methodologies to make standard simulations better in some sense. And you could look at it as, first of all, AI being utilized to, to define better simulations, uh, AI to operate simulations more efficiently, and certainly AI to interpret the output of simulations more effectively. So it's, it quite explicitly recognizes the utility of simulations and the fact that people work in those domains. And, it's, it, and it says, well, how can I make that better for you? Can I, can I help you define, d design better simulations? Can I help them run more efficiently? Can I help you better interpret the results coming out of them? So broadly struck, that's kind of the characterization of what I mean by intelligence simulation. It's the explicit application of AI methodologies to simulation strategies as they exist today with the intent of trying to make them better in some sense. So what you mean is instead of having a person looking at the results of simulations, you really have AI figuring out the results or figuring out how a simulation is going. Should we kill this one? Should we start a different one? Is that what you mean by intelligent simulation? Yeah. So, so for example, um, just, just think about the problem of executing simulations, which is crudely put, kind of a digital representation of how, the, how we do scientific experimentation in a wet lab kind of sense, where you have a hypothesis, you run an experiment in the lab, you get outputs, you evaluate those outputs, you, the actor being a human, to decide what the variation on that experiment should be to, to, to further pursue that hypothesis. In, in a world of ensembles of simulations, you have sort of the same problem, except rendered in digital form, where you execute a simulation, you get some outputs, you assess how that compares against some objective, shall we say, and then you recalibrate the simulation to run again with some refinements based on your experience, know-how, um, et cetera, et cetera. And you do that in, in an attempt to try to uh, produce a result in a very parsimonious fashion. You know, the minimal set of simulations required to get you the insider understanding that you're looking for. Well, that human agency involved in that process is something that can be augmented by the incorporation of AI, where one can use AI to really assess the outputs of a particular simulation and then make judgments about what the next simulation in that ensemble should be. And by virtue of learning, uh, by participating in this exercise of, of simulations, the AI system can become um, a rather effective director of how that kind of work takes place. And certainly, we can imagine how the explicit incorporation of AI inside of a simulation can also be beneficial. You know, this sort of holy grail that you and I have talked about for more than 20 years of real-time application steering or real-time simulation steering, I should say, um, is something that's, that's part of that same domain. So all these variations on that theme are part of what I mean by intelligent simulation. That's great. And it sounds like uh, this is work humans are doing today, right? So it, this is like the worry of AI. Will this replace the person that today is running the simulations when we have AI get to this level? Yeah, and, and, and here it's an augmentation quite explicitly. It says the simulation still has to be created, human endeavor, and a, and a hypothesis has to be generated, a human endeavor, 
and now the execution, the design, et cetera, can be aided and embedded by the incorporation of AI. And certainly we, we've done a lot of work in that area and, and I'm sure others are pursuing that as well. So it's, um, it's an acceptance of the world the way we've done it historically, but the application of a new family of tools, artificial intelligence, to make that set of activities run better than we could do just by ourselves. That sounds great. Are you seeing any promising results right now? Yeah, we've, we've actually been working uh, in this area for uh, about three and a half years. And um, we've, we've done this in combination with a variety of customers, a variety of disciplines. And we've seen rather stunning results, actually, in terms of this pursuit of the parsimonious ensemble of simulations. So, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, we have, we have clients that may do millions of simulations a day, or they may do tens of thousands a day. There are all sorts of ranges of the quantity of simulations. Um, and in, in a simple sort of HPC sense, if somebody says, well, you, you have to do 15 million simulations today, you can kind of characterize the simulation and you can predict the kind of infrastructure you need and cost it and build it and do all those things. But with the incorporation of AI, what we've seen is examples where we've been able to cut down the number of simulations by more than two thirds on a pretty regular basis. And, and the benefits of that are quite astounding, right? And depending on your point of view, you either get to reduce the infrastructure you need by a lot, so you save a whole bunch of money, or you take the infrastructure you have and suddenly you're capable of using it for a lot more than you were previously. That is, you've created for yourself excess capacity. So these are pretty stunning results that we've seen. Uh, they're replicatable. Um, they're not is at this point generalizable. And the difference, of course, is I can demonstrate with a particular category of problems, similar kind of output, but we haven't generalized it across a vast, a hugely vast domain of problem types. Uh, we've gotten results as good as a 95% reduction, but I would never advocate that that's the, the metric that one should look at and say, that's my, what my expectation should be. But I, I do think that, generally speaking, we're going to see a dramatic impact on uh, the efficacy of computing infrastructure by the incorporation of these techniques for that kind of problem domain. Yeah, so you're saying that you shouldn't expect 95% reduction, but you may expect two-thirds, and that's pretty significant. So if I were going to run uh, 100 simulations, maybe thanks to AI, I'm only going to run 33 simulations and get the job done, which which means I can buy a smaller system or I can use my system to do more. Um, yeah, that's, exactly. that's, uh, that's significant value and return of investment for, for the company that is, that is doing this. Um, I wonder if you have any specific examples you'd like to mention where I'm just one example where we've seen this type of results. Well, yeah, we've, we've uh, in the pharmaceutical uh, domain, we've used this approach to look at um, potential um, drug compounds for efficacy against a particular kind of disease vector. Uh, and uh, we reduced uh, a set of about 20,000 compounds for evaluation to um, about, uh, well, that was a 5% example. So uh, that would be, what, 1,000 um, 
compounds for evaluation. So that saved a huge amount of time in that particular case. There's another example which we used, uh, which was in the domain of chemical formulation, where um, we, we, we used uh, an approach based, uh, based on Bayesian methods to um, uh, efficiently execute ensembles of simulations to look at combinations of compounds coming together to create a particular um, molecular output, let's say. And in that particular case, um, uh, we, we reduced the amount of computing by more than 60%. I think that was close to two-thirds. And we also got a dramatic impact in uh, uh, fidelity of the answer as well as a result. So that was a huge effort. And, and these approaches are, are, are being implemented operationally now by the clients that we've been working with. It's good to see that you have real examples where you're getting traction that, that makes it real, right? So maybe what are, what are your thoughts? What, what do you think you see this style of intelligence simulation in five to 10 years, for example? I think it's going to be a really significant element of, of the analyst toolkit. And I choose the word analyst carefully because I think one of the things that I'm concerned about, of course, is, is the use of language and how it impacts uh, behavior and how people think about strategy. So, for example, in our conversation today, we're talking about HPC and AI as if they're two completely separate things, I would argue that they're part of the same family tree, uh, mathematically, algorithmically, computationally, et cetera. There's a relationship there for sure when you begin to look at some of the mathematics um, underlying the way people are, are defining neural nets and so on. So rather than, than um, encourage this dichotomous view of what's going on, I continually try to talk about the amalgamation of these two fields. And, and the reason for that is when linguistically we talk about these things separately, then you see people talking about, well, I have an HPC system over here and an AI system over there, or I have an HPC organization here and I have an AI organization there. And that's all nonsense. All, all that stuff should just be brought together under one umbrella. And we need a sort of different, a, a different kind of um, way to describe that. So when I say analyst, uh, I'm talking about the data scientists writ large. So I'm, I don't want to be, um, uh, I don't know what's, what, what the right word is. I don't want to be so precise in terms of definitions here, because if I look at the work of a data scientist and they're doing log, log logistic regression and they're doing deep learning and they're doing machine learning and they're running simulations or they're trying to solve Markov models, why should I try to put that into any sort of convenient taxonomy? Those are just a family of tools that they need to bring together to solve the problem. I think part of um, the issue here has been we've lost sight somehow of the difference between algorithms and workflows. So one can sort of excise a work, uh, sorry, an algorithm and say, well, it's an HPC problem. Let's solve it in an HPC way. Let's build a simulation to analyze it and so on. I think in a commercial deployment, we have to think more appropriately in terms of a workflow, which brings with it potentially a diversity of algorithms, but also a lot to do with data, uh, wrangling data, you know, and, and getting it prepared and prepped 
for the different steps because it's important from a commercial perspective to really attack the workflow and not elemental parts of the workflow. Uh, if you focus on the latter as opposed to the former, you run the risk of um, progressively working more and more on the margin. And if you don't mind, I'll give you a very concrete example to that. Um, so some years ago, I was working uh, with a company in the oil industry. And as many of your listeners will know, for decades now, um, people in the oil industry uh, exploration have, have used supercomputing and HPC to great effect. Uh, and for 25 years or 30 years, if you had a meeting, someone like myself had a meeting with somebody in an oil company, it all came down to how do I make reverse time migration run faster? Or how do I make elastic waveform inversion run faster? Or Kirchhoff methods run faster? It was a very algorithmic centric kind of discussion and, and very appropriate in that regard. Started to change a few years ago as a lot of the vertical companies began to see the impact of big data on their exploration activities. And the point was struck home to me when I, I met with this one particular company, we had all this, a day long discussion of algorithms and architectures on algorithms. And at the end of the day, I posed the question, which I should have posed at the beginning of the day, which was, what's the most important computing problem I can help you with? And they said, sort my data faster. They had a workflow perspective of the problem, and we had rendered that into an algorithmic perspective to our great peril. And I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations, and I found that, you know, if I built a machine that could actually solve their simulation in zero time, I would have taken maybe, oh, 5 to 8% off the total amount of time of their workflow. This happened to be a seismic processing problem. If I could have increased the sort time of data by a factor of 10, which is feasible, I would have cut the workflow down by 40 to 50%. So from the CEO perspective, what should his people be working on? If time is money and a shorter amount of time spent in investigation is better than longer, they should be spending all their time on trying to figure out how to sort data faster, not worried about how to make uh, Kirchhoff methods run faster. So that's why I think that we've gotten ourselves into a bit of trouble over time is we've continued to focus on algorithms without a consideration of the overall workflow. And once you begin to really embrace the notion of workflow, you begin to see many, many additional domains where AI could play a role to help you optimize that workflow. It's very interesting to hear your reasoning because um, your point, if I can paraphrase, is um, because traditionally we focus on algorithms for HPC or AI, we may be a bit down in the weeds trying to solve a problem that only improves the overall workflow by a small percentage. Once we look at the real problem we're trying to solve, which may be improve oil exploration, and we look at the complete workflow, we have opportunities with HPC and AI together to solve a much larger problem and optimize the overall workflow much better. In that case, we're talking about not HPC and AI as separate, but HPC and AI together almost creating a, a new field, and maybe that's what you call intelligence simulation. Does that make sense? 
Yes, and, and I, I'll give you an example from the AI domain as well on this regard. And <clears throat> this is very particular to you know IBM's point of view and our engagement with customers, but I think it's generalizable to just about anybody working in the field. If you have conversations with clients, a commercial client, about the deployment of uh, deep learning and machine learning, um, the work typically associated with data scientists working in this area. It's very exciting. It's very compelling. It's very sexy. Uh, but the simple fact of the matter is that if you look at that in the context of a workflow, you'll find out that that set of activities comprises maybe 15 to 20 percent of all the activities and all the compute power required for the whole workflow. In fact, the vast bulk and majority of the time, effort, expense, and so on, uh, which comprises about 80 to 85% of the workflow, is all around data. How do I get it? How do I prepare it? How do I organize it? How do I serve it? All those things are the material uh, major part of the workflow associated with what the work data scientists do, and by implication, what people working in AI as data scientists do as well. And, and the and the cautionary tale here is, let's not com confine ourselves in such a way that the benefits of what we do, as amazing as it might be, find itself progressively more and more on the margin. Yeah. Now, that, that's a very interesting perspective. You're ahead of many people that come from HPC and thinking about the problem together. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how should people prepare for this change? How will our jobs change going from HPC to, let's call it intelligent simulation for now? Well, I think it's, it's, it's just a matter of, of embracing a new set of tools, right? And, and in the case of HPC, uh, people have developed new tools and, and so on over the course of time. Um, you know, and I think that, for example, the development of MPI back 25 years ago was an important tool to really begin to facilitate the use of parallel programming. Now you have OpenACC, you have CUDA, you have other things that facilitate um, the incorporation of, of accelerators. And this has been part and parcel of what the HPC uh, family has been about. You know, develop new tools to solve new problems, study them, learn them, deploy them. I don't think it's any different here. I don't think it's a grand mystery I don't think it's tremendously difficult. The frameworks are there, which have really gone a long way to facilitate the utilization of, of these kinds of ideas. And I think it's, um, it's something, I mean, if I were in charge of a, of a university department and no one would ever want that, believe me, mm -hmm. uh, I think it'll be a natural thing for its inclusion in the pedagogical roadmap of people pursuing computer science, HPC, and so on. I think it'll, it'll, become very natural for, for people to look at this. I think the other thing that'll happen that'll stimulate this is as people discover that AI can not only augment the way they've done HPC historically, but in some cases actually displace it. That is, you know, intelligent simulation, the way we've talked about it, is a strategy of augmentation. It's not a strategy of displacement. Um, the other thing I wrote in that paper about cognitive discovery actually pursues that other angle, which is in response to the fact that some simulations are a very expensive to design, build, and run, and 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 B, 
uh, they just take too long to execute to produce useful kinds of results. Well, if you're faced with that reality, which is nothing more than an articulation of constraints, you know, let's change the game. Is there a different set of tools that gets us out of the box that we're in in that particular domain? And that's why we we started going down this path of, of cognitive discovery. Can you, um, even though I read the paper, can you share for the listeners what is cognitive discovery? Right, and and so as I as I began, this is this is a notion that says, all right, let's let's forget the idea of simulation for a second, and let's use AI techniques to solve HPC class problems. So we're not going to do simulation. We're not going to do partial differential equations. We're not going to do any of that stuff that's associated with HPC. We're going to try to take a much more data-centric approach to solving HPC problems. So, you know, I had a drug problem and a chemical formulation problem in the examples uh, I showcased just a couple of minutes ago. Well, but that was still predicated on simulation. And now the question is, well, could I solve those same problems without doing any simulation? Are there a different set of tools that could allow that to take place? And when we asked ourselves that question, the beauty of it was it took us deeply into this issue of the 80% that I outlined a moment ago in terms of the workflow for how people do AI, which is all about this issue of data. So how do you get data? How do you organize it? What's the architecture of the data and all those kinds of things? And um, so we began looking at that and said, we need, we need to figure out a way to do that. Okay, got that. But then another thought intruded on us at the same time. If you go back to the 80-20 model that I outlined, um, I think people are generally comfortable with the idea that you need a data scientist to build these uh, neural nets and so on for AI. What a lot of people may not understand is that you need a lot of other complementary skills that are working on that 80% part of the problem data architects and maybe mathematicians and, um, you know, computer scientists, et cetera. And here's the problem. Today, sitting at t equals 0.001 in the time scale of the evolution of AI, uh, those kinds of skills are concentrated in urban areas around the world. So if I'm a company that sits in the middle of the United States, as an example, and uh, I don't happen to be uh, located in a major city, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, uh, Austin, et cetera, the opportunity to get that portfolio of human skills to execute my, a pro my AI problem is quite problematic. And so, you know, we kicked off the, the conversation talking about growth of AI. One of the impediments to growth is is where the skills required to, to execute AI are in fact concentrated, right? Yep. So it's hard if you're in Peru, if you're in Ecuador, if you're in Colombia, if you're in the middle of the United States, the middle of Canada, it's, it's a problem, right? If you're in Montreal, if you're in New York, it's not a problem. If you're in London, it's not a problem. So that thought then prompted another idea, which was, okay, how do you deal with the shortage of skills. Well, one of the ways to deal with it is automation. So let's ratchet back to this issue of cognitive discovery. Okay, it's all about the data, but how much of this activity can we begin to automate to actually make the accessibility of AI more 
I don't know, egalitarian, if you will, right? So we took the two ideas and merged them together, and we created automated tools to ingest scientific information at scale. Um, so we have tools that are recognized mathematical equations and graphs and tables and numbers and chemical formula and all that kind of stuff. Uh, automatically architect that information for the delivery to um, a set of tools that will automatically generate neural nets. So what have we done? We've taken all those skills that are in short supply and we've replaced them with automated capabilities, not completely automated. There's still some oversight handholding and in some cases some very detailed work that needs to be done. But in the majority, most of it's removed. And it turns out that the tools actually do a quite extraordinarily good job of going all the way from the ingestion of data to the creation of information to the creation of knowledge graphs to the creation of the opportunity to do semantic search to the creation of neural nets based on the data that you want to operate on such that you can't tell the difference between the models that are generated automatically excuse me, versus those that are generated by a professional data scientist. And from my perspective, that's one of the big steps that has to be taken by the industry to promulgate the, the whole notion of, of how AI begins to get deployed. So this is a really fascinating area because now what we're doing experimentally, again, we've done this with many, many customers, is we're using these tools to create um, one, access to public information that goes quite beyond the scope or capability of normal humans to be able to analyze. So, for example, um, how many digital scientific libraries are there in the world? And the answer is, I don't know, but it's a big number, right? So you look at archive.org out of Cornell, 1.5 or 2 million scientific papers, and you look at WebMD, and you look at... Um, uh, Elsevier, and you, you can just keep going down the list. Some of them are public, some of them are private, but there's a huge amount of information out there. It turns out, as an example, that in 2018, I think there were 450,000 scientific papers in referee journals just on material science alone. So we have another issue here, right? There's this expansion of knowledge that's getting generated, which would be very useful for, for people to understand, but it's too much. So, all right, we're going to create systems to automatically capture that information, organize it, and let you operate on it from an AI perspective to create models that are appropriate for the problems that you're trying to solve. So, all these ideas have to come together. It's not one by itself. It's not, you know, I have a tool that does this. No, it's a string of tools that gets you from the beginning to the end of the workflow that does automation to make the approach egalitarian and that accommodates the kind of notation that's representative of what scientists and engineers do. So all those things are part of, of, of the ambition here of what we're trying to do. So when you talk about a lot of data, you're really talking about results from experiments, but you also talk about papers that have been published all over the world that you're able to right. ingest turn into knowledge, turn into inference. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and there's another category of, of data as well, and that's the data 
that constitutes the corporate memory and know-how of a particular corporation. So um, I can't get too particular here, but we have, we have um, customers working in the material science field who uh, have, have come up against uh, failures in the materials they produce, which carries with it a, a pretty big financial risk. And they've been in business for a long time, and they have a huge amount of know-how and experience that exists in filing cabinets, in spreadsheets, on hard drives, in corporate database. It's all over the place. There's no organization to it. There's no architecture to it. And there's no ability to operate on it. Even if you took all this documentation and put it in front of the engineers working on the, the problem they're currently working on, they wouldn't know how to get through it in any kind of reasonable or co coherent time. They wouldn't know what they knew. They wouldn't know what they missed. They wouldn't know anything. So it's not simply a matter of external information, you know, knowledge of the field, as critically important as that is. It's a matter of how you capture the know-how within the, in the firm. And I think this is a really critical idea because if you look at the, what it takes to acquire know-how, it takes time and training and, and experience and all that kind of stuff. But people leave, they retire, they get new jobs, they die, all these things take that know-how with them. And I think one of the roles that we're looking at for AI here is to really be able to begin to create these um, corporate memories, for lack of a better phrase, of their scientific and engineering data, maybe for decades. Now that involves some additional innovation. You've got to be able to handle handwritten notes. You've got to be able to understand and, and interpret that kind of information. And we're doing work in that area as well. So it's, it's not something that can't be done. Um, you know, we're, we're well along the way to, to solve that problem. So it's this combination of in-house information and know-how with what's going on in the field that you want to have access to. And getting back to this threat of egalitarianism, the question becomes, how does a 100-person company compete against a 10,000-person company? And I think one of the great leveling levelings that's taking place here is the utilization, the application and utilization of AI by these these small companies will let them behave as if they're big companies. So if I tell you, I've got 450,000 papers just from last year I need reviewed, well, you're not going to look at them all. You've got maybe, if you're a big company, maybe you've got a group of 10 or 12 people who know the field, know the important papers, they can cut it down pretty quickly, they've got their own experience, et cetera, et cetera. But if I'm a 100-person company, maybe I've only got two people, and how do I compete? And I think this notion of building tooling to automatically ingest these volumes of, of information, if you will, and present it in such a way that you can operate on it, I think is, is a great leveling device in terms of how people will compete economically over the course of time. Historically, you know, markets and economics have talked about the advantages of scale. And I think one of the great things about AI is it may, by crudely, um, you know, representing the collective intelligence of what's going on in a particular domain, I'll let everybody to kind of play at a common level here without regard to size. That's a pretty exciting thing when you think about it. It means that small and developing countries have a chance to play in the big time, right? 
and uh, it, it could be quite revolutionary in terms of how people conceive of competition going forward. Yeah, so by having the area of cognitive discovery enable you to basically read all the new papers and have access to all the information, you democratize access to these new discoveries and information and let the small startup compete with the big companies. And so yeah. And the, and the kinds of companies that we've partnered with on this so far are, with only a couple of exceptions, mid to small companies. And they've come with problems that are technical in nature, but at their heart, they're fundamentally competitive in nature. So we have one company that's concerned about fast followers in Asia. So they're doing innovative things, but they have fast followers that, that kind of erode the advantage of, of their innovation very quickly. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, maybe you put innovation on steroid and do things that much faster. And I and, and so one of the applications of this notion of cognitive discovery uh, permits them to do that. They're punching above their weight quite dramatically as a result of having access to this kind of kind of tooling. And you know, all the problems that we looked at are typically they would be viewed as HPC problems. Right. Yeah. But we're using uh, we're using an AI approach with a, a great effort on this notion of how we get this collective body of know how to be applied to the problem to solve it in a different kind of way. So it's just a different tool, different set of tool to solve what may be a problem that might be solvable by simulation uh, or it might go quite beyond what simulation can do. So every one of those cases will be a case-by-case -case decision of what the right tool is, but that's what life is about anyway, right? Uh, not everything is a nail, not everything's a hammer. So it's the same thing here. We'll do simulation in some cases, intelligence simulation in others. We'll do cognitive discovery in a third. And when you look at the workflow, you'll see all these techniques being applied in one workflow, right? You'll see cognitive discovery maybe preparing the battleground by handling all the data and building some neural nets, and maybe that'll feed into some simulations that'll be orchestrated by AI using Bayesian techniques, and the output will be analyzed with some AI techniques comparing against the outputs of uh, what we see in the literature, and voila, suddenly you've got something you could never do before. Very good. Listen, Dave, this is fa all fascinating. Where we're heading, um, it's, it's fantastic to hear. I wonder if IBM offers open access to AI in some form for people who wanted to play. You, can you share something? Um, let's see. We, we have a lot of ways, and, and I'm going to take you one step further in yep. this domain of AI, and I'm just going to speak briefly about quantum because we, we also have a big project going on in quantum and IBM, and for a couple of years, I've been talking about quantum viewed as an accelerator to um, uh, classical computing. Another way to put it would be if we decompose workflows, there will be an opportunity in some workflows for the application of quantum approaches as well. So we see these things as all part of a bag of tools, if you will, that can come together in the right kind of context to produce really extraordinary and exceptional results. In the case of quantum, of course, um, we have, um, with the IBM uh, Q, one can get on the web and play with our quantum system. In the case of cognitive discovery, uh, if one uh, looks up IBM React 
or IBM RXN. Uh, you can get access for free to a system we built with cognitive discovery tools at our Zurich laboratory that will allow you to um, assess using cognitive approaches, assess the outcomes of, um, of uh, chemical reactions. So you go in, you specify a number of molecules, a couple of reactants, and then you turn it over to the system and say, what do I get if these things react? Uh, by the way, uh, we demonstrated that at the American Chemical Society meeting uh, in the fall of last year in Boston and uh, measured it against professional chemists. Uh, professional chemists, 25 years of experience, will get that answer right about 71, 72% of the time. Our system gets it right about 91% of the time. This is organic chemistry only. We're going to do backward reactions as well. You know, here's an out, here's an output. What are the uh, reagents and, and chemicals that went into it? So those are the kinds of things you can play with: uh, base technology and quantum application level in chemistry and AI. Uh, and then and then beyond that, um, of course, we have a whole product suite as well. That sounds very good. Well, now that IBM has chosen Rescale for HPC in the cloud, I'm sure we'll be working together in a number of ways going forward. That's right. And, and I think that's going to be quite complementary to all these ideas because um, with Rescale and partnership in the marketplace, all the te technologies we've talked about, by the way, are enabled to run in the cloud, both public and private. And so they'll be part of the portfolio going forward. That's great, Dave. It's been really good listening to you, hearing your thoughts about where we're heading with uh, rethinking HPC with AI. Um, before we close, anything you'd like to add? Well, I just enjoyed having the conversation with you because typically, as, as you well know, uh, people like us don't get that much time to speak about subjects that are important to us in any kind of detail. So this has been really important and I appreciate the opportunity. And I, I think the last thing I'd like to leave, leave uh, listeners with is um, there's nothing we're talking about here should strike fear in the minds of anyone. I know that there's a lot of concern in the lay press about uh, the impact on jobs and, and this and that with the um, emergence of AI. But um, I think it's going to give rise to new kinds of opportunities and new kinds of approaches in the field that we're talking about here that can provide some really great opportunities for people going forward. Um, study it, learn it, and uh, participate in it, and I think everybody will be fine. It's not that hard going forward. Uh, the work that's gone on, not only by IBM, but other companies to automate or simplify the approaches, really goes a long way to the democratization of the technology to let um, you know normal people get access to it. And I think that's an important thing for everyone to keep in mind as we go forward. Very good. Well, I would like to thank our guest, Dave Turek, Vice President for HPC and Cognitive Systems at IBM, for sharing his experience and his vision to help us understand the future with HPC and AI. Till next time, I am Gabriel Bronner, and this was the Big Compute Podcast. <music>